Touch them all, Joe. Sidney Crosby, the golden goal. Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. In this episode, we speak with Laura Mingale, who has made a name for herself at the intersection of storytelling and technology. We'll get into the start of her career, where she worked with big media companies to market their entertainment properties before she became a leading voice and advocate for VR. We'll also touch on her love of magic from a young age, which continues to fuel her imagination to today. Laura, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How about you? Doing well. Yep. Enjoying the... Uh... The best that I can out of the change in the weather as, as the temperatures get a little colder. But uh, I, I am looking forward to changing up some of my activities as we, uh, as we get into the, the winter season. Excellent. So looking, looking back at, at your history, you know, and I'm thinking long before the gig economy actually emerged, you know, actually looking at my own teenage years, I generally had multiple concurrent jobs, just something I always did. You seem to share some of that that desire and that work ethic uh, from what I've seen out, out of your history. But for me, honestly, it was just about keeping busy and not to have all my eggs in one basket. You know, what would you say drives you to be busy and to multitask and over your career? Has that reason changed at all? I love that question. I'd say I'm just driven to make a difference. And I'm driven, I'm, I'm naturally curious. And I feel that our industry is constantly changing, but I'm not curious about how our industry is changing. I'm curious about how audiences and consumers are changing. And getting to that deeper level excites me a lot. And, and that's why I continue to get my hands into all of the different industries that I've touched over the past decade plus. That's great. I mean, I'm happy to hear that, that, that keeping busy, that work ethic and mentality keeps through you to this day. I know that uh, for some people with, you know, based on their stage of life and other pressures, it's very hard to do. Uh, for me, it's always been something I just, it's what makes me tick. And, and I'm happy to hear that you share some of those same themes in your life and, the, and your outlook and how you go about your business. So you've spent at least the beginning part, but it seems like a lot of your career on the marketing and communication side of the business, whether that was entertainment or media. But today we know that you know, you're so much more than a marketer, but you're truly the first kind of marketer. You have the most marketing experience that we've actually had so far in the Backstage Project podcast. So I wanted to get your perspective of the role of marketing you know, at a media company and how you had worked with production and the distribution parts of the business to promote a show or promote a property. Sure. Um, so I, I've always had a passion for storytelling. Um, so I'm a storyteller at heart, um, which brought me into marketing and story based on insights. So going back a few years, if we're talking about history, um, I grew up actually with magic. Uh, my grandfather was a magician, um, but I grew up knowing that humans have the power to create magic through insights and storytelling. And for me, those stories can inspire uh, and make a difference in people's lives through magic and magic performance, um, all the way through to understanding audiences to make them to change uh, their patterns or behaviors to simply purchase something 
or to be a part of something. Um, so fast forward uh, another five years when I was 10, um, I actually wrote my first ad pitch um, and that was to Wrigley Gum. Um, and I still to this day uh, have a reply that I got from customer service from somebody named Joanne Carr who's since retired. I actually tried to look her up a few years ago. And um, my, my passion uh, goes back to that point because of those passion points are rooted in story and audience. So fast forward to when I started my real career, I unfortunately did not make it big when I sent my note to Wrigley. I got a, a pack of gum back and a nice note, which was fantastic. You got something. I mean, my daughter's been writing to all kinds of companies and getting stickers actually. Oh. So it is good to see they respond. Yeah, that's and that's great to know that they're still responding as well. Um, it, it makes a difference, I think, on, on people's lives just to get that response in any way. And the same could be said how you're responding to a consumer or simply a fan of a brand um, or, or, or talent or, or anything like that. Um, my, my background before moving to the fun side was working on consumer packaged goods marketing. So that's where I really grew my roots within marketing outside of uh, going to McGill and, and getting that core education within that space. But I, I've always applied that way of thinking, that CPG, consumer packaged goods mentality, to everything that I do within uh, entertainment marketing. Um, so moving from Pepsi, my first gig uh, was not official gig, but full-time gig, uh, if you will, uh, was actually at Disney Junior, um, where I, I was able to apply uh, understanding audiences, so it's the same thematic, understanding um, how audiences connect to, to story, um, and then leveraging those insights to find the right partners to bring those stories to life and to find the right messaging all the way down to five second promo spots to bring those stories uh, to life. Now, working for a company like, like Pepsi uh, and what Pepsi has become you know, over 100 plus years, I understand, you know, you got it's, it's a business school approach. You, you have a background going to business school. You have a BCom, I believe. Yeah. You know, and so, so it makes sense to become a brand marketer. You know, when you're in the entertainment space, and let's keep Disney a little separate because I, I believe they're, they're just as powerful as any, any CPG that are out there. But you spent time at CTV and then you spent time at E1. Yes. And it's, it's slightly a different environment. And I'm curious if you can pick up on a few of those those differences in terms of how they look at marketing or look at revenue and monetization and give us some examples of maybe things that you did uh, to help uh, you know, drive the business forward that a typical media company in Canada may not have been considering at the time. Sure. Uh, so in terms of the range of companies uh, that I've worked for before starting my own business, it is to your point, it's a CTV um, all the way through to an Entertainment One, now a Hasbro. But it's not just about the different businesses. Those uh, and brands or entities, um, those were completely different businesses from national TV, uh, from preschool TV to national TV, um, to uh, distribution of film, um, to promotions of film, and then all the way through to uh, virtual reality uh, under the company Secret Location owned by Entertainment One. Um, so in, in terms of the range of projects uh, that I've worked on, you're looking for how to how to do things differently and, and how did I apply um, that way of thinking to entertainment? Yeah, that'd be great to understand that because I think for a lot of the audience that we've had so far, we've skewed our conversations toward production, storytelling, a lot of the things that people see on their television screens or on their you know mobile device or connected TVs. 
Yeah. And your world is just a little different because you're you're working in a distributed environment where, yes, there's the product that ends up on a screen or a device, but you still also have to get the audience and bring them to that experience. Definitely. Um, so <laughs> I've had so many examples. I'm almost at a at a loss <laughs> for which ones to bring up. Uh, would you like here? I'll give you a a la carte. Uh, menu for you to choose from. Uh, we have very niche uh, virtual reality um, experiences that have been launched globally, um, all the way down to a new IP um, that was launched, um, although that's Disney and you said we'll, we'll stay clear of that, um, that I led the Canadian launch of. Um, or it, it could be uh, starting an the idea of an entirely new line of business under one of the entertainment companies and helping to bring it to life. Which would you like? <laughs> Why don't we pick the example where you're starting a new business? Um, so going back to the theme um, that you mentioned, uh, you, you can relate to someone who's curious and, <laughs> and your daughter's curious uh, as well. So just a very important trait and a trait that I admire um, a lot. Um, I When I was at Cineplex, my role, this is actually how I transitioned from just marketing um, to doing a lot more than that. So my role was focused on marketing for everything from branded content, um, where we did some great content called Lily and the Snowman and a Balloon for Ben that won a ton of awards, um, even beyond uh, with the Canadian um, territory, which was quite exciting. But I started to get more curious about storytelling. Um, I'm always curious about it, but even more curious about story. That was my first uh, animated short uh, that I worked on with a, a fantastic dream team of multiple agencies. So as I started to learn more about story, um, I started to also go back to this incredible experience I had once a short while ago at a Facebook party called Virtual Reality. And I'm like, I want to learn more about that. And there were some blogs about VR at the time, um, a couple uh, video records of sessions, like literally in the basement at Cannes or Can, however you pronounce it. I'm not, I'm not fancy enough. Um, I was, I was watching and consuming everything I could, and I started to go to these local meetups in Toronto. Uh, run by Tom Emmerich. I'm not sure if you guys uh, attended. Yeah, perfect. I, I didn't yeah. attend, but I, but I know Tom. I was on a panel that he was moderating once. Oh, fantastic! Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Yeah, he he's had such an impact beyond Canada, as now and like literally now uh, within the world, even with the role he has right now. Um, so it's quite exciting to think back to what he was doing, and it's back in the day his meetups on VR were attracting like close to a thousand people on a regular basis and packed house at Mars Discovery District. And I was I was attending one and I heard about this little company called The Void. And he played a cool uh, video that I that I'd seen, I think only a glimpse of once before. And I I I will never forget I had goosebumps. And I started to write this email um, pitch. Um, and then I refined it. And that night or the next day, I think I I'd sent a pitch to George Sauter, um, who's who who was the head of strategy uh, at the time for Cineplex Entertainment um, about, hey, maybe we should consider learning a little bit more about the void and integrating the void into the Cineplex ecosystem. Um, so for those who are listening who don't know, I know, you know, <laughs> but for those who don't know uh, what the void is, um, I'll take a step back and uh, the void. Um, was called that year later um, one of the most innovative companies uh, in the world by Fast Company, I believe. Um, a few years later, they were invested in by um, 
Disney. Um, but The Void actually started um, by a couple incredible uh, creative geniuses based in Utah, including one that was a one guy who was a magician called Hurt Curtis Hickman. Always back to magic with you. Always back to magic. <laughs> um, and uh, I ended up pitching this idea forward and George's response, instead of saying, great, I'll take it from here, is, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to learn more. Let's meet. I had not even met him in person uh, before. Um, so I'll fast forward, but long story short, I ended up uh, pitching this idea through to the Void guys, and George allowed me to uh, take the lead, uh, of course, under his wing. Um, we went to Utah. We, we discussed how the Void could be integrated into the Cineplex ecosystem, um, and it ended up coming to life, which is so exciting. Um, multiple, although everything is shut down right now, I would assume still across the country, multiple Voids yes. got brought to Canada, but it's because of that curiosity and that interest in storytelling, but also a lot of data, um, a lot of data using like that traditional CPG um, approach. It wasn't just George saying yes, and then magically everything uh, came to life. Um, it was a lot of onboarding, um, educating even like a Dan McGrath, the CEO of Cineplex, on what VR was, <laughs> all, all the way through to getting people to try VR and putting a, a rift on people's heads and walking them through what the potential could be. Um, down to uh, showing them analytics and projections um, and and kind of bringing to life that story because you need to have a story to sell internally of what that audience or that user experience could be and why it would make sense for that business. So that's an example um, of making a change and also how I transitioned away from just doing marketing to doing VR. And from there, um, I, I, I just focused as hard as I could um, on that space. Well, and you've done a great job with it from, from my research into you and seeing the, you know, whether the social posts mostly on LinkedIn that you're putting out there. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You deserve all that credit. I wanted to really focus on something for a second there. And it, and it had to do with, you know, the courage that it took for you to send that email to put yourself out there. Um, we've had numerous speakers you know, on, on the podcast already who have talked about just that difference that people have in in asking the question or saying hello, um, stepping aside from kind of the corporate hierarchy and bureaucracy that sometimes holds us back. And I'd like to just ask you, you know, how did you have the courage to send that note? Oh, I love these questions. Um, I'd say I don't know how to not <laughs> have that courage. I know that I'm not the kind of person to speak up if I don't know something or to speak up for the sake of speaking up and asking a question, if I feel strongly enough about an idea and I know that there's a fit and a connection, I have the confidence to reach out. I will also say this, uh, there's always uh, politics to be aware of uh, when working for larger companies. So it's just about knowing when you can take the risk and the appropriate way to take the risk to reach out to people um, without upsetting. Um, anyone or stepping on anyone's toes specifically your 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 boss right like you know you know right you wouldn't you wouldn't want to do that yeah, but even the <laughs> format that you sent it like in an email and i was just reading an article recently about you know bezos and musk and how you know powerpoint or the various versions of powerpoint are just not acceptable in those organizations and it needs to be written because writing is harder than standing in front of a room and talking about images and making it up as you go <laughs> You know, when you were working on that project or really any any project that you want to highlight, where, where do you sit on 
the storytelling, imagination versus just writing it up? Because I, I would expect you're a very visual person, but I'm curious about how you get stuff done. Oh, that's it really depends. I'm, I'm very much in general. Um, I love sticky notes. <laughs> I love making a mess. Um, it's all about connections for me and then grouping things together into one cohesive story. So using a sticky note example, it's nice to find the themes, group it together and then build out what you're trying to say using the PowerPoint example, like you mentioned. Not like Pepsi is the only place that I learned incredible things, but they're definitely experts at what they do. You're owning, you're not just doing marketing at Pepsi, you're owning a business. And uh, annually, there's a lot of different presentations that you do from analysis through to pitching uh, innovation within the company, even at lower levels, uh, which is quite exciting. And one great, one of the many great pieces of advice, uh, advice that I got from a boss at that at that company was if you're doing a PowerPoint presentation, yes, you can have a lot of data and a lot of beautiful charts and images and, and GIFs, although GIFs weren't even a thing back then. Um, but really, if, if you're scanning through, every headline within your presentation should be a part of a sentence or part of multiple sentences that refines that story. It, it's Whether it's a deck um, or simply an email, it's what are you trying to say why is it relevant for that audience? And what action do you want people to take? How do you want people to feel? So that can be applied to a pitch all the way through to uh, an email, um, even on a quick update. Um, it just has to be clear and you have to know the audience. Beyond the document and the pitch, you know, we, we know that you've made a name for yourself in, in VR and immersive storytelling. We're hearing bits about that already. You know, I saw that recently uh, you were involved, deeply involved, um, with something called Magicians in VR. It was a it was a, an event. Not exactly sure of the form and the format, so you're going to help us explain that a little bit. Yeah. What what initially, I mean, we already heard how you kind of fell into VR a little bit thanks to Tom and and the uh, the events and I think I was actually speaking at one of those events at Mars. I don't remember what it was. Such called. a small world. Yeah. Of course it is. Of course it is. But at this point, I mean, you're evangelizing VR as a storytelling platform. And so what is that like on a day in, day out? Maybe you could talk and weave in how the Magicians in VR event is part of that. Explain to us a little bit how that's how that's working. Because for those of us who are paying attention to the industry, you know, whether it's the the OEMs, like the device manufacturers or the Facebooks and the Oculuses of the world, or you walk in a if you're walking into a Best Buy, which I'm not many people maybe are these days, but <laughs> you, you see a range of headsets that are there. What's the landscape like right now and, and what are you doing in your capacity to evolve it as a, as a place to tell stories and experience? Right. So uh, before getting into magicians in VR, uh, I'll say it's, we've come a long way uh, since our Mars uh, visits um, and all, all the meetups uh, that happened in real life, in person, without VR headsets, about VR. Um, I'm... I'm excited that right now we're in a place where you no longer need a massive VR rig and an expensive VR headset to access, access decent content. But now there is the Quest 2 as well as other hardware um, that's available and soon to be available. And I cannot wait until Apple comes out with whatever version of headset uh, they're coming out with. Um, I. I've just been talking about it 
in a meaningful way to literally everyone that I can. I, I can't help myself. I, maybe it's a problem. Maybe I need to go speak to somebody. <laughs> but I, I, I speak about VR just because I'm so passionate about what it can do, not just for entertainment and storytelling with clients, including a, a client in, let's say, 2D linear storytelling, um, who's not only bought one for herself, but for her husband as well, and is now allowing me to integrate VR potentially into what it is that they're doing. But buying one for my parents, who then have this network where they're telling people that they just traveled to Spain last night uh, without leaving their home. Um, so I'm evangelizing it simply by understanding where people are connecting because I truly believe in it. I, I'm not doing it because I, I, I feel like VR is like the place to be. I was in it when people were saying VR is terrible <laughs> or that's not there yet or it will be ready in like 2030 um, or maybe it's for enterprise only. Um, within the magic community of which I'm a part as well, I, I, I feel that there's a lot of synergy and I know we've talked about this a lot, but it's definitely a passion point, story, entertainment and magic because of the insight into technology um, and, and even like neuroscience uh, is applicable uh, within magic, which is also applicable for marketing as well. But I had this crazy idea in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic, uh, right in my living room, I was at an event uh, and I'm like, there's no, there's no magic here. Uh, it's a great event. It's cool because there's 3D objects. There's like a red carpet situation happening. But you know what? No one's done anything um, with magic in VR. The very uh, idea of VR, if you think of it, is almost like a magic trick. It's an illusion. Um, it, it's you're putting on a VR headset, and um, there's there is people around you in social VR, but really they're not in your living room. Um, so I had this idea and I'm like, I'm not doing anything, not going anywhere. Let me create the first uh, gathering of magicians um, in VR. So uh, I created it and produced it and uh, connected with Microsoft, um, who supported um, with some with in-kind um, in-kind support and a couple developers um, in in three different countries around the world uh, helped to bring this concept to life, um, as as well as uh, some magician um, magicians that joined me on stage. So. Curtis Hickman uh, from The Void, uh, who is now an industry friend, Adam Chire, who is the co-founder of Siri, um, and Simon Piero, um, who's a digital magician based in Germany, um, and and a friend um, who's had he's got over 80 million views on YouTube alone, um, and it, it is really known for taking everything from VR and robots um, into his magic tricks. So. The concept was bring some magicians together. Let's talk to people about in, in the same shared space, the applications of magic to storytelling. So evangelizing magic, but also to evangelize VR to the magician community who can join within their headsets if they have them or simply by desktop. Um, and it evolved uh, to the point where uh, we actually made history. We were the first event ever um, in virtual reality to have li a live magic performance. That's amazing. Um, which is incredible. It actually involved uh, audience members as well. Um, I don't know where they were in the world, but we were all together in the same space. And I chose AltSpace. I reached out to Microsoft because right now AltSpace um, is... I 
I think the best platform for events. Although there's a lot of different great platforms like GR, VR Chat, for example, um, in terms of the number of people you could fit in an instance, um, and the fact that they gave gave me access to uh, their front row technology. So while we had one space that every everybody felt present in, um, we were able to actually duplicate our spaces or instances where we we were all together on the stage, but people joined once they hit a certain capacity for the the virtual space or the virtual theater, um, it actually just duplicated. Um, so people felt like they were in their own semi-private event. No, that's very cool. And that's, you know, I've, it's a different format, but like I've seen it on Fortnite, like watch it with my son playing, not me, I swear, uh, <laughs> you know, watching, watching a concert or actually watching a sporting event. It might, it might've been an NFL game, if I remember correctly, mm. or a soccer game, but that, the community that you're talking about here, you know, you're Canadian, you're based in Canada, you're, yes. you're operating on a global scale from what you've, what you're describing. You've, you spent some time on, I think it's the programming side of South by Southwest. Advisory board. Yeah. Yeah. So coming from up here in Canada, coming from very Canadian brands, whether that's Cineplex or, or CTV, you know, where did you make that leap? Uh, to become part of more of what I would call North American or global community um, where you're helping drive the knowledge curriculum. We already talked about advocacy um, in VR and immersive storytelling. I think the leap, my intention wasn't to make the leap and go global. I've worked on projects that are global, <laughs> many, many, not many, many uh, relation to what other people have done, but uh, quite a few uh, multi-platform global launches. But with what I was doing uh, with speaking about the opportunities of virtual reality and augmented reality, but VR is really what, what I've been speaking about most, I just started to get invited to speak um, in real life. <laughs> uh, the irony of this, like being flown to, uh, to Silicon Valley all the way through to the middle of the Swiss Alps. Um, and I, I just start to develop a network. And when you connect with other people who are evangelizing as well, and you connect on your shared passions, and usually those people who are evangelizing are curious and excited about the same thing, you just start to build and you support each other and you develop that network. And you mentioned this in relation to my answer about um, magicians in VR. I had those I had those relationships because of what I developed already. And Simon and I had connected based on shared ideas. We are both mentioned actually in an article. That's where we first, I think, had a, had a touch point um, that both of us didn't even initiate. Um, but whenever you're developing those relationships, that's how you go global. I don't think any, if someone has the intent to be big or to have a big voice and to be a thought leader, I feel like that's the wrong way to go because the intent is then about them. And that's not how you evangelize. You evangelize based on what it, what, what, what are you excited about and what's relevant for audiences to hear about. It, it's hard, it's hard to know, you know what people want. From what you described earlier, there's, there's a word that I like to use, like that's part of your evangelism and advocacy. And I like to say that, you know, in your case, you know, Laura is willing it to happen. You you see a future state and you're not waiting for someone else to go and talk about it. You're having the conversations, whether they're, you know, person to person or you happen to get quoted an article 
or you, I know you also write, so you happen to write an article, yes. plus you're very active in content publishing around the magic space as well. So you do have a lot of platforms uh, to, to change the will of the people. Like, how, how do you think about my, about my perspective of what, what you're trying to do here or what you are doing? I think that's scarily accurate. <laughs> uh, I, you're right, because it's not just having an opinion and connecting with the right people uh, that you think that opinion could be valuable for, those ideas could be valuable for, but it goes back to also curiosity. It's the, I'm not writing. That's not how I make most of my money. <laughs> writing, writing does not, not pay my way. Um, although it's great to have uh, some compensation for that, of course. I'm not knocking that. Um, but I, I write because it's my excuse to share ideas and it's my excuse to reach out to people. I'm lucky where uh, I'm currently contributing to two major platforms. So Upload VR, the top source for virtual reality news globally, um, and Canada Media Fund, CMF Trends, that actually has an audience beyond Canada. And while Upload v VR is, of course, a little bit more focused on the immersive storytelling, um, CMF Trends is very much focused on new ways of thinking about uh, content and monetizing content or new ways of uh, thinking of audiences or developing story. So it satisfies my curiosity to be able to do that. You, you touched on a couple parts of your day to day there, you know, writing uh, both for VR and writing for the Canadian Media Fund publication which I honestly wasn't aware of until I started looking you up a bit in, in anticipation <laughs> of our chat today. We had, we had a guest uh, on already, and I think we did, we're doing a two-parter, so we didn't get too deep into VR or the CMF. And you might, or might know Don Young, or maybe you haven't. If you, if you haven't, we should absolutely connect you guys. If for any reason, it's because you've both been guests on the Backstage Project podcast, but you're also deep into VR and the Canadian Media Fund. So if you could speak about it, and um, nothing confidential, but what have you seen as um, the Canadian Media Fund kind of stepping up to allow VR to you know, have its day, to, to be part of you know, the, the Canadian, uh, Canadian culture, Canadian society, evolving our, our entertainment desires, hopefully for the betterment of Canadians, but, but I'll let you fill in the blanks. Sure. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll go even bigger. So there's Canada Media Fund, there's Telefilm, there's even provincial organizations like Ontario Creates that we are so, so lucky to have here in Canada, so much so where they're known outside of Canada for how well they support content within the immersive space and beyond. And it's not just about monetary support. Yes, they do that. And they, they do more because they're very, I, I admire how they select projects um, based on uh, diverse thinking, innovative thinking, um, everything from small like AR apps that are quite unique in, in terms of uh, what they do, all the way through to uh, larger scale uh, VR content that has a global, global, global launch, uh, on VR, on PC, and even on mobile. Well, it's good to see that, you know, and these are dollars that are kind of funded from within the system. We'll just let the audience know, Don Young, when we release part two of his, his episode, he's going to explain all of this. So we're not, we're not going to ask Laura to do that today. Great. That's, it sounds like a great, great follow-up with them. Yes. Yes. Maybe we'll have you both on kind of a panel 
co-interview in, in a future episode. Um, I'm in. <laughs> all right. I love it. So kind of closing out the, so, some of the content we really wanted to get out, out of today. We're, we're looking at, at your advice, your guidance on things that the audience should be looking for, our audience, about emerging or maturing content or storytelling formats that, um, that you're spending time on. Okay. So given the caliber of people uh, that you've already had uh, publicly on your show, uh, and, and given that question, I will say the audience should not be focusing on content. They should be focusing on audiences and consumers. So the same, the same group um, and what they want to be entertained by. If we're talking about storytelling within the entertainment industry, I find it important, but also um, at our detriment where we still have organizations that are just focused on certain forms of content. Um, that is not how we will move our industry forward. But what's even more important is that's not what consumers are looking at when they look at their entertainment. Um, I think that it's important to look at how different forms of entertainment can blend together and can connect us. So as an example, Apple, um, of course, has their own linear 2D content and their own new platform. They also have the distribution channel with their devices. They also have devices that are AR enabled. Um, so they'll be able to have content that is not only engaging on different sizes of screens at different formats and different lengths, but that content and that IP could be extended to even augmented reality experiences. And again, cannot wait for what they do with VR, which is coming. Um, I'd say that it's important also when trying to figure out where where to pivot or where to extend to that those people within the different formats that they're currently comfortable with and comfortable with working on, um, they're getting more familiar with analyzing what their audiences are doing with their overall entertainment time and that where their time is being spent on entertainment all the way through to what their pain points are with the content. Yes, you may be selling, for example, uh, TV content or marketing TV content for people to watch on broadcast um, or on a mobile device or OTT platform, for example. But it's not just about promoting the show. It's about understanding who's watching, how are they watching, how are they sharing that experience, um, how do they get there, what are the pain points, what what are the opportunities, what, what are they doing to make it better for themselves. Um, and solving for that. I know it's such a broad statement uh, to be said, but in terms of the the forms of content, if you if I just say, hey, VR is an important form for you to look out for AR, that's not that helpful. Um, I feel like if you're in the entertainment industry, you should know by now that those are very important forms. Um, gaming um, goes across all types of um, hardware uh, from from console through to PC, PC through to mobile, it's important to be aware of all of the entertainment choices that audiences have, but at the root of it, understand what stories audiences want to engage with on their own and socially and build for that. That's a great answer. I, I, looking at, at the market that you described it, there are, you mentioned Apple already, obviously Google is a name that comes to mind. You would think that Microsoft plays in there as well. You've already mentioned have supported uh, your initiative with magicians in VR. Yes. I'm not certain how it impacts more of the legacy media players, you know, whether that's NBC 
or you know Turner or Fox in the U.S. Let's keep Disney a little separate, Disney, ABC, and ESPN, because they're an animal in and of themselves. In Canada, though, and you and I are both not prepared for this question, so we're going to dance together <laughs> on this one. Okay, let's dance. <laughs> uh, how do you see how do you see Canada playing out here? We have a protectionist, you know, policy around the ownership of telecommunications and media in Canada. We've heard about the trouble in, in the landscape. Uh, we'll probably see some more of that, unfortunately, uh, to probably some people we know very well who are still in the media business right now. How do you see Canada weathering the storm of not having the distribution, the players, the backing, the audience um, to generate enough money to, to make all this reality for us? So do you think that when you're talking about Canada, a question for you. Are you talking about players that are creating content for Canadians and it's only running within Canada? Yeah, I'm also talking about the, so that's more of the media fund model or local television. I'm also talking about the ability to rent content as we've seen uh, sports. That's the dominant use case. We've also seen you know, whether it, you know HBO and how that's buried inside of Crave is rented content as well. It's, uh, I, I'm just worried. I'm worried about the future of the, the Canadian media entertainment sector. And uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, if you're worried about it as well. Both of us are in more of a global game anyway and in other yeah. industries. So we're lucky, I guess. But uh, for our friends that are still in the middle of it and the, you know, tens of millions of Canadians who rely on, on the, this legacy model to deliver their entertainment, like, what do you see? As, I as, wish I could be like, you know what? Here's the solution <laughs> in, in one pack sentence. And then there's just silence on the other end. And you're like, wow, that is the solution. You're right. Let's go make it happen. <laughs> I, I wish I knew what that magic bullet is. I feel like as an industry globally, we're constantly evolving. And if we just look within the confines of a territory, that's the wrong thing to do. If we start to understand what do we own versus what are we licensing um, and what are the risks with licensing content of course there's benefits as well um, what do we own what can we build what local stories are actually universal truths um, how could we how could we build this content and uh, license it globally or how do we extend this IP and take a Disney approach for example where it's like it's almost laughable to say oh Canadians can't create Disney content that it, it's not about duplicating. Um, there's a lot of great success stories of Canadian companies, but any company that doesn't innovate is going to fail. So if a company itself doesn't have that mentality of evolving and, and genuinely investing and taking risks and learning, then yes, <laughs> that company would be at risk. But it, I, I don't have the answer in terms of how it can be solved as much as I always like to solve things. Um, but yes, uh, we will all be in trouble as an industry if we don't ask the right questions and we we stay doing what we're doing when the audiences are changing. Well, I think it was a good answer under the pressure and I'm, I'm going to give you a pass on that because uh, you, you deserve it. <laughs> but, well, do, I want to hear, Do you? what are your thoughts? Do you think that there's uh, any, any possible interim solution or long-term solution we should focus on? Well, I skew a little more to sports. Unfortunately, that's more of my, my background in here. And, and, and I, I think that the, the costs and the power are going to shift back to the creators, which is kind of what I think you're saying. We've seen that 
Uh, we, we've seen that from Netflix, where it doesn't really matter where the content comes from. It's about how it's distributed. That's how it's monetized. I, I see that you know, Canadian producers still need a hand to compete because we don't necessarily have the investment uh, that other countries may have in their productions because our audiences are just, are just smaller. What we're not going to get into today, and it's a topic that I certainly need to line up the right guess for, is um, how betting and sports betting is seen as uh, a little bit of a way out of this, at least for the sports broadcasters. But uh, as we've seen in Canada from cannabis you know, regulation, um, you know, decriminalizing activity doesn't necessarily mean that we get the desired result on the commercial side of, of our country. So we're going to leave it at that for now. Because I don't want to okay. be too far <laughs> off track for you or for me. Great. And actually, I'd love to comment on not the last part, because I definitely cannot comment on sports betting, uh, for example. Um, but it's, I, I agree there's an opportunity for creators and the power to go back to creators. However, um, it's not going to be that easy. And I feel like there's a lot of hardware providers that are becoming the new distributors and the new owners of that distribution platform for content. Apple on the VR side, Facebook, really taking a huge cut of content creators, hard earned, not even hard earned money, but that some of some content creators are not even making enough money to cover the multi-million dollar cost of creating a premium game. Um, so yes, I hope that creators win and we all find a way to work together because you do need platforms, you do need uh, hardware updates to have the best new experiences for audiences. Um, but it's it's not going to be that easy just for creators. Well, we're going to have to absolutely schedule a follow-up in season two or three of the Backstage Project podcast to get you back on. Andrew, I, ho I hope you heard that, season two or three. Yeah. Uh, but before we close for today, there's a few questions that we like to ask everyone who comes comes on the, on the show. Some of these you might have answered earlier uh, in our chat, but we'll see what comes out when we give you the chance now. So if you had to pick a moment in your career um, that you look back on as the most memorable, which one would you pick? One moment. <laughs> I'd say it was actually during a training course that I took um, that was paid for by one of my employers. And I, I believe in, in training and supporting uh, learning um, either for yourself or your company. The companies should be supporting their individual um, employees. Uh, this training session I took um, was a Stephen Covey-based um, course, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I I've will- taken that course. Oh, really? So <laughs> we're, when I, we're when I was at spirits. Rogers, years and years and years ago. <laughs> Very nice. Well, do so then you will, this may resonate with you uh, even more so, but one of the um, lessons was now think of every important role that you want to play in your life. And now this is a bit dark, but you've died. <laughs> uh, and pick one person from every that represents every single role that you've played. And what are they going to say about you? Um, so it's the lesson begin with the end in mind. And I feel like that was the most important moment in my career. If you were to ask, it's not based on a specific achievement. It's based on uh, the understanding that everything that you do um, from how you uh, react to situations that may, may be thrown your way um, to choices that you make and choices that you, including choices that you are knows um, in your career, it's always making choices uh, based on the end that you have in mind. 
That requires a lot of emotional intelligence to pull that off. <laughs> so it's an exercise hopefully all of our listeners have gone through in some kind of corporate training or there's, there's got to be a book about it. We'll, we'll have to add that to our show notes uh, about where to get more information on seven habits of highly effective people. Great. So when you look back on the early days of your career, yeah, what, are, what is something that you, know, you wish you knew then that you, you just know now? Oh, so many big questions. I, I feel like I don't know everything now still. And I, I feel like it's, it's valuable to know. I'm going to have so many great answers after our interview ends. I'd say, don't be in such a rush. Um, I was focused a lot on, I still am (laughs) achieving, um, and growth, but I realized again, going back to that Covey, um, Stephen Covey, um, habit, it's not about title. That's how other people see you. It's about what you've achieved and how you achieve it. And I know this is super cheesy, but the legacy that you leave behind, not only in terms of how you achieve it or what you achieve business-wise, but how you leave people feeling and the relationships that you build with the people on your team or your extended team. I realize that's so cheesy, (laughs) but I feel like it's important, um, especially for the younger millennials um, to to know that it's it's truly not about title. It's about what you want to do and, and what you want to give and what legacy you want to leave behind. I think it's a great answer. So I'm glad I put you on the spot with that. There's another way that I kind of describe it, just to put it in really simple words, is leave them wanting more. Yes, that's good too. Um, I tend to speak a lot. So sometimes I give everything I can (laughs) and then I I, I just, I want to excite people, but I, I like the leave them wanting more. That's a way, that's a hook. Uh, that's for episode from episode one to episode two. <laughs> I like that strategy. Oh, which you're, you're, you're the expert in, so I don't have to teach you anything <laughs> about that. So, Laura, listen, it's been great chatting with you today. I appreciate your openness to uh, go down a path that maybe wasn't planned for when you, when you said, yeah, I'll go on that podcast. So really appreciate it. I hope you continue to do well. And I look forward to following your progress. Excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.